Welcome to Practical Forms of Self-Love with Jesh Durox, a mini-series focusing on 10 essential perspectives and practices to embody self-love. Here's Jesh. This is day six of our 10-day exploration of practical forms of self-love. And uh, today we're going to be talking about, as a theme, life and death and what that has to do (laughs) with practical self-love. And when I say life and death, I'm not actually talking about actual life and actual death, uh, because that would be way too big of a subject to be tackling. So if you've been joining me for the past five days, you know that I've been looking at this subject of self-love, which is obviously a super important subject, and uh, kind of talking about it from different angles. It's become a much more popular theme these days to talk about self-love, which I love, which I think is wonderful. But I'm a kind of person who things need to be taken outside of concept and into my body for them to matter. They need to be a part of my thought process. They need to be a part of my worldview. They need to be a part of something that I can put into action. And so that's a big focus of this 10-day series is uh, how do we put some of these big lofty concepts into action? And hopefully by the way that I try to break down these concepts and uh, share them, they can become more accessible and they can be something that you can... um, you know, experiment with as soon as the talk is over, even maybe during the talk. So this whole idea of life and death that I want to talk about today, it's not uh, actual life and death. It's that term, life and death. It's that, you know, phrase life and death. So we, we use that, you know, in our language sometimes to say about how important something is. And this whole topic kind of got inspired part of a book that I read by this guy named Matthew Syed. And he was one of the world's best table tennis players. He had won, I think, the European Championship at some point, and he ended up going all the way to the Olympics, and he represented Britain, I believe, in the Olympics. He kind of has a really interesting story because he trained for this his entire life. He trained for it, you know, during his, his teenage years. A lot of money was spent on him. He talks a little bit about what it's like to be an Olympic athlete, which is quite an interesting thing. But a lot of money gets invested in them by by the state, by the country. Even after winning the European Championship, there was something crazy that happened to him. He was representing his country down in um, Australia during the Sydney Olympics, whenever that was, early 2000s maybe. And he choked. When it came time for him to play, he choked and he got smashed. It was like 21 to zero or something like that on one of his matches. he was so embarrassed because he had trained his whole life for this, but he just choked when it was the Olympics, you know? And he got so fascinated with why that happened that a part of his recovery process, which I think is so beautiful, it's so badass. I mean, if you spend your whole life becoming an Olympian and then you choke on the day of the Olympics, like, that's rough, man, that's rough. Your whole team is rooting you on, your family's cheering you on, you know? probably have a boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife who's super excited for you. And then you choke on the international television, like, ouch, scary stuff. So he got so fascinated with this that uh, he decided to explore why do people choke? Which again, let me just pause for a second and say, salute him for that badassness. Because a lot of times when people go through really hard things, they just hide, they just run away. They don't want to ever look at it again. They don't want to bury it. They don't want to see it. They want to bury it, forget all about it. This guy goes the opposite direction. And as a result of that, 
finds a lot of value and he ended up writing an entire book about what he found and is now an expert on uh, high performance and gives talks around the world about all of this stuff. So super fascinating. One thing that really, really stood out to me from his book, from his talking about this whole subject of high performance, getting all the way up to being an Olympian, you know, and why, why we choke sometimes is that the very top athletes, the very, very top and this is true, of course, not just in athletes, but in pretty much any kind of high performance, doing anything really, really well. They have to do something that's kind of like double thinking. They have to train as if their life depended on it. So in other words, that they might die if they don't do this right, if they don't do this well. It has to mean that much to them. And then secondarily, when it comes to the game, when it comes to the actual time to perform, they have to completely forget that there's anything riding on this at all, that there's, it's, it's not about death at all. It's not about survival at all. It's just about having fun. It's just about losing yourself in the moment. It's just about enjoying it. And that is a total, you know, 180. And if we have one on one end and the other on the other end, you know, most people are somewhere in the middle. And he says the very best of all performers, they've got to do both. They've got to believe while they're training that this is life or death serious. This is life and death serious. And the reason for that is to get to the even close to the level of an Olympian, you know, you are facing such stiff competition. You have to practice and you have to push yourself to an unreal level that most bodies, most people are like, no, thank you. Long time ago, no way. I want to go party. I want to go on my couch. I want to go cuddle with my partner. These people train again and again and again for just ridiculously long, long periods of time. It's so, so fascinating to me. And I wanted to pull a few things from that in, in, in what we're going to be talking about today on this theme of practical forms of self-love. How can we actually integrate practices of self-love into our daily life? So if we take this phrase life and death, and we kind of break it down. What does that really mean? For me, it's talking about joy and survival. Obviously, joy representing life and, you know, survival representing death. Because it's not really death that the athlete is thinking about as, as he or she is training. It's about survival. It's about it matters this much. It, it, I have to win at all costs. Just on a mental, biology, neurochemical level, hormonal level, to get your hormones that engaged in something, you have to believe with all of your might that this really is about, you know, why you're here on the planet, that this matters so, 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 so much. And of course, with people practicing sports, this is quite a trick because let's look at basketball, for instance. It's a, it's a ball and you've got to get it in a metal ring. Why does that matter so much? People have to basically tell themselves a really intense story to make themselves believe that. It's obviously especially on the level of Olympians. It's not, it's not about putting a rubber ball in a metal hoop. That's not what it's about anymore. It's about, it's about dominance, you know? It's about how big I can be in my life. It's about who's stronger. It's about who's faster. It's about who's willing to push themselves harder. It's really interesting to me how these questions that we've been asking ourselves for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years have taken all these quite specific forms. It's interesting to me how many forms they can, they can take. I'm not suggesting that that's wrong, but I think it is really important to look at it closely and especially to be aware when we are playing those kind of games with ourselves, when we are caught in those kind of stories, because sometimes 
uh, we are in situations that probably aren't actually about survival, but we're treating them as if they are about survival. So something I just kind of wanted to look at, though, is what if we started designating things that we did in our life as things that related to survival, which would be death, or things that, that related to joy, which, which would be life, you know, with this whole phrase, life and death. And if we started interacting with those two pieces differently, because just, I think, as can happen with this incredible athlete at the very top of his game who'd practiced his entire life to do this kind of stuff, he practiced his entire life to get to that point. And he choked. He choked. And so basically one of the things to pull from this is there's a different piece of us that needs to engage when we're by ourselves working doing the thing we need to do to build, uh, taking care of our responsibilities. And then there's another piece of us that we need to draw out to engage when it's about enjoying ourselves, when it's about our, our life, when it's about things that should just be fun. And I think those two different areas are really confused a lot in life. And I think it's a beautiful form of self-love. It's an extraordinarily beautiful form of self-love to know the difference between the two. And uh, because the brain obsessively prioritizes survival. I think that there are a lot of people on the planet who are approaching things as if they were about survival when they really aren't about survival at all. And they're missing out as a result of that on their life, on their actual life. You know, John Lennon says this really interesting thing. He says, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Why are we busy making other plans? Why do we do that? It's because we think these things have to be about survival. And God knows, almost all of us experience this. I, I've certainly sometimes been so deeply hurt or upset because a friend was doing something and they didn't invite me to be a part of it. And I wonder, why wasn't I invited? What is it about me? Are they mad at me? Why didn't they think of me? I would have thought of them and gotten upset about it, gotten into turmoil mentally about it and made up all of these stories about it taking something that really isn't that serious and making it about my survival. And of course, when the ego gets threatened, that's exactly what happens. So when you, when you feel tense, when you feel tension at all in your body, when there's tension, it basically means the amygdala has been turned on. It means your fight or flight has been, you know, knocked on. It means at least you're in a low level state of like, be careful, be careful, you know? And so learning how to tell what's happening with your body paying attention to the levels of tension, you know, paying attention to areas when your, your body language shifts can be actually a really beautiful form of self-love too, because as we've talked about these last, you know, six days, to have a relationship with ourselves, there has to first be an awareness because awareness always precedes relationship. And I think one of the biggest reasons why most humans don't have a relationship with themselves, don't really know who they are, don't really know what they're capable of, aren't really tapping into that, is because there's not very much awareness of what the body is. <laughs> there's not very much awareness of the mind. There's not very much awareness of consciousness itself. And those things, they always perceived a relationship. So as I said, the brain obsessively prioritizes survival. And um, it, it has a way of, of making things life and death important when they're not actually life and death important, okay? So another way to kind of uh, talk about this, I think too, is there's this, there's a couple stories about Jesus that actually came to mind that I, that I wanted to share. I think Jesus uh, was an incredible artist, a powerful creative. Whether or not you believe in, in you know, anything beyond that, I, I don't, that doesn't matter to me right now. 
I, I just think it's a, it's really interesting. And uh, two stories came to mind. One is these uh, people who didn't like him very much were trying to trap him, and they were lawyers, <laughs> and uh, they came up with a pretty tricky question. And while he was teaching in front of a lot of people, they pretended to have a question that was a helpful question or was a, a genuine question, and it wasn't. But, you know, such is life. They ask the question and they say, Jesus, please tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And of course, at this time, the Jewish people were subjugated. They were oppressed and they were not happy about it, you know, as I'm sure you could imagine. And it was a very, very, very tricky question because if he would have answered, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jewish people would have freaked out at him. They would have got mad. He would have lost his following. He might have even been killed, you know, by them. But if he had said, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he could have got arrested by the Romans and he for sure would have been killed. So either way was wrong. Either way was wrong. Tricky stuff. And he says something brilliant. He says something absolutely brilliant in response to that. He says, give me a coin. And they give him a coin. And he looks at it and he says, whose face is this? And they say, well, it's Caesar's face. And he said, perfect. Give to Caesar what Caesar's give to God what's God's. So I think that whole idea of Caesar and God is this other interpretation. It's another metaphor to talk about this idea of life and death. We've got Caesar representing death, representing survival, representing the thing that we have to do, you know, the thing that we need to do to just survive right now in this particular moment. And then we have this other side that is that is God, which represents the infinite and the life and the, the boundless joy and the growth and all that stuff. And I think a lot of us, myself included, can struggle sometimes to really find that right balance. That what's Caesar's and what's God's, you know? What things do I have to do? What things are my responsibility? What things do I just really want to be doing? And I think there is a certain amount of subjugation, you know, that just exists as a human. There's a certain amount of, um, of uh, work that we need to do that maybe we don't want to do. You know, there's a certain amount of pressure and stress that we have to be able to make it through. You've got bills to pay, most of us. We've got people that are dependents upon us. You know, we've got friendships that we need to be pouring into to maintain. We've got work projects that we're working on, you know, and a lot of that sometimes will entail these menial kind of details that, that aren't necessarily fun for us, you know, and there is a part that we do need to do there. However, a person will often just get so overwhelmed living like that, that they will start copying and pasting that mentality really onto everything. And even things that they could be enjoying, even the things that technically belong to God, they're not even there for that. They're not even there enjoying that. So I think this whole idea of having some food, let's say you worked really long all day for several other people, you did your projects, you didn't want to do them, but you did them. Then you've got kids, you're taking care of your kids, they're finally asleep. Everybody is, is asleep in the house and it's just you and your meal. And a lot of times, you and your meal sitting there, you won't even taste the meal. You'll just shove it down, even though it's your favorite food. You'll just be shoving it down and your mind will be thinking about the Caesars thing tomorrow, you know, and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And that unfortunately is, is like choking. It's like choking because here's your life. This, this is your moment to enjoy yourself. The work is done, at least for now. Sure, it's going to come back later, but right now it's gone. This is the moment that belongs to God. This is the moment that belongs to your life. 
to be able to tell, is this a moment that I can really just completely dedicate to joy? Or is this a moment, you know, that I really have to focus in and hone in and just pay attention to survival? And I think being able to swivel back and forth between those two things, we would be able to go so much deeper with each of them. And I think raise each up on a higher and higher and higher level. And instead, because there's not very much awareness of the mind, because there's not very much awareness of our body and what it's telling us constantly, a lot of us, myself included, just kind of maybe are a little bit unclear about which of those two moments I'm in right now. Is this something I have to do? Is it not something I have to do? If it is something I have to do, I don't really want to do it. I'm so I'm going to partially hide while I'm doing it. I'm not going to fully be there. And then when it, that stuff is done, I'm not going to really enjoy the time that I have just to myself because I'm still kind of mad about this last thing that happened and I'm, I'm upset about the thing that's going to happen in the future. And you see how none of them really get done right. And if we could build ourselves up to the place, grow enough awareness to just say, this is something that I need to do. This is a responsibility that I have and I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it with everything that I have as if my life depended on it. I'm going to do everything that I can to just do this thing so well which you can actually end up doing when you approach something that much. Just as what happens to Olympians is they can really actually start enjoying the deep work of training super hard from some, for something. So even though it pushes their body to the limit, there's a sense of thrill and of pride that you can get, which can end up being joy if you go deep enough in that direction. Then on the other side, when it's time to just relax and to enjoy yourself, if you give yourself the permission to just shove aside the worries for tomorrow, shove aside the bitterness, shove aside the anger that we get about these things, and just really soak up and enjoy every bite of the food that we're eating. You know, we soak up going to sleep every night. Going to sleep is one of my favorite things. I don't sleep a whole lot. About five or six hours, you know, lately has, has been all that I need. But I, I love the feeling of getting in bed, especially after a long day where I've worked really hard and did things that I was really proud of or, or played really hard. That feeling that, that you get of putting your feet in the cold, cold sheets. I don't know why sheets get so cold, but for some reason they get so cold. I put my feet in the cold sheets and that feeling kind of tickles my nerves and I, I kick my feet almost every single time, whether I'm with somebody or whether I'm not. Almost every time I'm just here in my room alone, kicking my feet just giddy with excitement about this one small moment. Of my many faults and failures, one thing that I have really gotten good at, I think, is enjoying the part of life that can be enjoyed. And I, I have a lot more to go in terms of how many more moments I could enjoy what I'm doing, but I, I have practiced that a lot, and I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually quite good at it now. I can be walking down a road on my way to do something and see something on the side of the road, a plant or a collection of stones or something beautiful somebody wrote, or something in the distance like a cloud. I can just allow myself to stop and focus in on that and just soak up that beauty, soak up that beauty. And that is me giving to God what is God's. That is me honoring that particular you know moment. And then in other part of my work, of my life, which is dedicated to my work, I almost always only work on things that I really believe in. And that makes it a lot easier for me, I think, than, than for a lot of people to enjoy even, even the hard work that I'm doing, even the focus that I'm doing. This for me right now, what I'm doing is a form of training and it's a form of pushing myself because it's not uh, very easy for, for most of us to be speaking in front of other people. 
even though there might not be a massive crowd here, there, there's a, cr a crowd of people uh, watching right now. And some part of the brain, you know, is concerned about that. What if I mess up? What if I say it wrong? Uh, communication is so important to me and so integral in my line of work that I want to keep getting better and better and better at it. So part of the reason why I come on to share in this particular format is to keep getting better and better at communicating my ideas, even in the midst of distraction, to practice opening my brain in a way where I can receive and send the kinds of ideas that are interesting to me and that have been beneficial to me. So I'm, I'm working right now. This is work for me. But at the same time, I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled right now getting to talk to you. It's a, it's a huge blessing for me to get to talk to you. And so more and more percentage of my life, I'm, I'm in this thrill zone. I'm in this joy zone. And when it comes time to work, I can focus on my work and I can dive in and I can put myself in fully. And I can give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And then I can switch and now it's time to enjoy, you know, and I can pour myself fully and deeply into the enjoying. If I'm touching somebody's hand, the only thing that exists in the entire universe is that person's hand. If I'm eating a bite of food, I often love to smell my food before I eat it. And people usually laugh at me, but guess what? I enjoy my food a lot more than most people do. And if it takes something simple that other people will laugh at me at, like smelling my food, smelling each bite before I taste it, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? So these two subjects, this life and death, it's of life and death importance. I think building awareness of those two things is uh, really beautiful and it's a really beautiful form of self-love. I think one other quick story about, uh, about Jesus and then, and then we'll, we'll come close to closing this off. Jesus was doing this workshop one time and there were two hosts, Martha and Mary, and they were sisters apparently. And Martha was doing the dishes and cleaning up beds, you know, and just like arranging stuff. And Jesus was in the other room talking and Mary was in there just captivated, blown away by what Jesus was saying and was just wrapped holding on to every word. And there was a break. And during the break, Martha is kind of pissed off about this whole situation, which you could understand. And she comes up to Jesus and goes, Jesus, what's going on here? Um, you know, Mary is supposed to be helping me here and I'm doing all this work back here and she's not even helping. <laughs> He's so cool. He goes, peace, Martha. Peace, Martha. And you know what? I wish we all had a personal Jesus to just be standing there with us when our brain is like, Kathy was supposed to do this and she didn't do it. And why didn't John invite me to the party? And I'm working so hard and no one's even noticing and etc 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 my partner doesn't even see me for who i really am just jesus being there like peace someday i'm gonna make an app called jesus says peace <laughs> and it's just gonna be virtual projection of jesus every time that your brain starts getting too wired and too fried and you know just projects in front of you and it says peace josh peace <laughs> so anyways jesus says Peace, Martha. And this is the really important part, or at least just as important. He says, Mary has chosen the better portion. And so what he's getting into there, you know, which he alludes to in another story too about him, in my opinion, is he's saying the workshop isn't always going on. Okay, Jesus isn't always speaking. But when Jesus is speaking, good God, why aren't you in there listening? The dishes can be done later. The beds can be made later. When Jesus is speaking, shove everything else aside. 
Sit there with rapt attention. Open your eyes as wide as they can go to drink in every small color, every flick of movement. Open your ears as wide as they can go to hear every single drop of the words that he says. Every single one. And Mary was in there representing that part of ourself that honors that moment when Jesus is speaking, when, when God's time is on. And Martha was in there saying, yeah, but Caesar, Caesar needs this stuff. And, and she was right too. They were both right. So it's not necessarily that one is right and one is wrong. And I think that's why it's tricky for us sometimes. In another story that's similar to this, Judas gets really upset because this same Mary character, who was apparently you know, a beautiful, wild woman, uh, took this really expensive bottle of perfume and poured it all over Jesus's head. And Judas was the one taking care of the money. And he got upset and he's like, why did you do that? That's such a waste. That could have been saved up and used to help so many poor people. And again, Jesus is like, peace, Judas, peace. He says, she's doing this to honor me, basically, is what he says. She's doing this to honor me. And he, he said, you're always going to have the poor with you. You will always have the poor with you. You're not always going to have me with you. I think that's just such a beautiful reminder is that these moments, and again, they don't have to be as dramatic as an actual physical Jesus in front of you speaking. Sometimes it could be the spaghetti. And maybe it's your favorite spaghetti in the world and you're at your favorite restaurant. But your, your brain is just in Martha mode. It's just in Judas mode, you know, and it's betraying you. And there you are with your favorite bite and you can't even taste it. If only like miniature... Jesus could just be like, peace, you will not always have this spaghetti with you. <laughs> the spaghetti is just here for a moment, and then it's going to be gone while it's here. While Jesus is talking, listen. While the spaghetti is in front of you, taste it, okay? Same, 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 same. I think, to me, one of the biggest problems that we've had in the way that people talk about religion and talk about the powerful great ones that have come before us, like Jesus and Buddha and Confucius and all of that, is they've just raised it up to such these high levels of loftiness of, when we speak of Jesus, we shall only speak of the highest, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, if, if you're getting benefit from those teachings, they should be able to affect the way you eat spaghetti. You know, and to me, that's like a really great indicator of, of how well somebody's beliefs are actually working for them. You can tell me till you're blue in the face what you believe and how great all of that is. Let me see you eat spaghetti. That will be a better indicator to me of, of how well you're really sinking into these truths because all actual truth agrees with itself. I've gotten to experience religion from a lot of different directions. And something that I find in all of it is there is always an honoring of life. There's always a, an encouragement of awareness of, of these different, you know, dualities that are going on and that we need to honor each of them. You know, that's a really big part of this whole thing. So to kind of close this off, I want to talk just a little bit about this whole idea of, of the last time. When you're doing something for the very last time, if you know that it's the very last time, you do it differently. And I think that's such an interesting thing. Why do we do it differently if we know that it's the last time? What is it in us that just takes things for granted? If it's not, if we just know we're going to have it again and again and again, we just take it for granted. And that happens not just with eating spaghetti bites. It also happens when Jesus is in the room. And, and it also happens with our partners. It happens... Uh, with ourself. I think we take ourselves for granted more than, than almost anything else. We take ourselves for granted.
this idea of, of the last kiss, the last time that you kiss somebody, and the care that you would put into that, and, and the gentleness that you would put into that, and the, the power that you would put into that. I think it's beautiful. I think it's really, really beautiful to pay attention to the power of that. And sometimes I will tell myself that it's the last time or it's the first time that I'm doing something just to explore how I might do it differently, just because it kind of draws away, you know, that attention from this is about survival, this is about survival. And it's like, no, this is actually really just about deeply savoring and enjoying this particular moment. You know, instead of just the last day, we don't, we don't have to do it just that way. You could also shift in another kind of example. And this is a good way to take what I'm talking about today and put it into practical exploration in your life. I'll give you an experiment. I'll give you an assignment, okay? We're talking about life and death, this saying that we have, you know, life and it's, it's life and death importance. We're talking about these two different sides of our life. And one is about our responsibility to live, to provide for our families, to take care of ourselves. And the other part of life, you know, is about enjoying it and savoring it. You know, it's about working and it's about playing. These two different things. And we're kind of talking about exploring what if we worked really beautifully when we worked and what if we played really beautifully when we played and what if we were able to switch back and forth between those with better skill what would that look like what would that feel like so my assignment for this is what's the funnest way to walk across the room i think that's a really interesting one you know we just talked about what if this was the last time you walked across the room how would you walk across it what if this was the last time you touched your partner's face how would you touch it instead of just that that's beautiful but what if we just lightened it up and you said What's the funnest way to touch your partner's face? <laughs> What's the funnest way to walk across the room? What's the funnest way to make this sandwich? What's the funnest way to kiss somebody? And that small little thing, as silly as that might seem, I promise you, if you inject that into at least three different things later today, you will have an unusual experience. And, and my guess is it will lead to at least a little bit of joy. And guess what, guys? We can't experience, you know, a Goliath level of joy in a moment. All we can do is experience small little moments of joy again and again and again and again and again. And, and that's what makes the big joy. That's, that's what builds up. Joy is like a river. And it's all these tiny little dots of water filled together that create a massive flow. And the joy in me is building up and building up and building up and is getting more and more powerful, more and more powerful. Not because I have something more than somebody else does. I think probably it's just because I practice more than most people do on collecting and savoring and really being there to honor those tiny little moments of joy. And each one that I do becomes another droplet in my river. And so my river of joy starts to gain more and more force. I can bring that joy into the life part of my life, into the joyful aspects, into the play times, into the, the, you know, the restful times. And I can also bring that joy in terms of a thrill and a focus in when it comes time to my work to do my responsibilities. So thank you guys so much for joining me. You guys have a beautiful day. Forms of Self-Love with Jesh D. Rocks is produced by Jesh D. Rocks and edited by Elizabeth Windham. Our theme music is by Kai Kai. 
It's called Celeste from the album Fantasize. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this mini-series, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and general community. You can find Jesh at Jesh D Rocks on Instagram and Facebook.